Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to the Dinner Dialogue, where we're going to be sharing something about the digital advertising industry that's going to impact you, the publisher. Today, I'm really excited to share that we have Scott Trench, the CEO of Bigger Pockets, a brilliant real estate community that I'm actually very familiar with today with us on the show. Scott, to kick us off, can you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm, uh, I'm 30 years old, getting married here very shortly in the uh, end of November. Not sure when this is going to release. Um, uh, you probably already mentioned it to me, but uh, it's coming up soon. So very exciting time for me. Um, I am the CEO of biggerpockets.com. I'm a real estate investor. I have my real estate agents license, but I do not um, use that to sell properties for other people. I just use that to kind of get my own deals there. Um, I've got a book and I'm just a huge personal finance nerd. My career goal, I would say, is to help as many people achieve financial freedom, which is this concept of having enough passive income to more than cover your lifestyle expenses as early in life as possible. Because when you do that, you know, you free up high potential people to go out and make a big impact on society and, you know, start businesses, nonprofits, run for office, all that kind of good stuff. We trick you into thinking that you'll retire early and sip margaritas on the beach. Uh, and people do that for about three months and they get bored and go back to work. And so really excited about that. It's my passion. Um, and uh, yeah, love, love talking about it all day long. That's awesome, right? It's it's almost you you hunt down the financial freedom to have the free time, and then actually end up doing a whole bunch of other stuff. That's right, yeah. Because just you're well, in command. You're in command at that point of your time and your money. Right. Well, so we we are planning to to launch this probably in like a month and a half. So I'll make sure to to tag you and say congratulations to both you and your wife. Oh, so congrats you, on that. That's awesome. I, I think before before even diving into a little more about bigger pockets, I'd I'd actually love to hear how you ended up at bigger pockets because you're talking about financial freedom you're talking about being a real in, real estate investor now but to go from and i did a little research but operations all the way up to ceo i'd love to know how you how you ended up in the spot that you are yeah so i started my career at a fortune 500 company as a financial analyst and uh, quickly realized that i didn't want to climb the corporate ladder of going from financial analyst one to financial analyst two to senior financial analyst to finance manager to senior finance manager to director of finance to senior director of finance to <laughs> vp of finance to senior vp of finance to cfo over a 20-year period. That, that was not the career or life that I wanted. Um, and so I began to get really infatuate, infatuated with this concept of financial freedom, which I just mentioned, um, and became kind of obsessively um, obsessing over it, frankly. Uh, right. I began to spend as little as I possibly could so I could save up as much money as possible. And I wanted to figure out a way to, to reduce my lifestyle expenses to the lowest possible amount and just get to the bare, bare minimum amount of income to cover them and then begin scaling from there. I saw right. it as a the stepping stone was to live like almost a really tight lifestyle with very little few expenses. Yeah. And the biggest, most, most important part of my, my um, expenses at the time was my housing. Housing is for most people, their largest single expense. And my rent at about 650 bucks, I, I shared an apartment yeah. with a roommate was my biggest expense. So I was like, how do I eliminate that? Well, I, why don't I find, I found this real estate website called biggerpockets.com and podcast. And they gave me the idea of, house hacking, uh, the idea of buying a duplex, moving into half of it, and then having your tenants pay down your mortgage. Or you can do this with a triplex or quadplex or just a house of extra bedrooms. They all work. Uh, and I was like, that's it. Boom. If I house hack, I'm basically done right. uh, for the most part because you know, then my, the rest of my life only costs like 1000 or 1500 bucks outside of housing. Um, that's not a very large amount of money to have to cover on a monthly basis. Uh, so I did, I did that and joined Bigger Pockets at the end of 2014 as the third employee, uh, a little startup uh, online real estate community. 
And uh, yeah, I just worked alongside the founder for a long time. Director of operations was my title. And if you're the director of operations at a three-person company, it means you do all of the stuff that the founder doesn't like to do. 12 different to do. Yeah. <laughs> or the other guy, you know, the other guy was a guy named Brandon Turner, who is um, a big face of our brand and, and host of our podcast and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and so over the years, that included taking on more and more responsibilities, including finance, customer support, managing all revenue, managing all operations, managing all personnel. Uh, ultimately, you know, uh, the founder decided to take a, set, a back seat to the business and asked me to um, take over as president of the organization. And as president, I led the organization through a recapitalization where we brought on uh, private equity sponsors. Uh, we've got great partners, McCarthy Capital out of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and we concluded that in 2018. And uh, for some reason, I'm uh, still allowed to be in this seat as CEO and president and running the operation, I guess, until uh, we have a couple of bad quarters. So thrilled to be here and, and lucky and count my lucky stars for joining the, uh, um, the, the organization when I did and, and just trying to play the hand I've been dealt as, as well as I can. Right. I mean, still being in that seat means you've done a really good job so far, I would assume. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so again, before jumping into the, the bigger pockets part, really interested in the way that you got, got there. So it seems so just personal passion in terms of financial freedom. So a lot of the fire movement that I think a lot of people talk about is that, right. that kind of where you ended up and you just saw bigger pockets as um, another way to kind of share that with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the fire, fire was the motivating force for me and fire financial independence retire early is I think in and of itself, almost like a selfish um, desire at first for most people. And I think that's perfectly okay. I yeah. think it's wonderful. I was not motivated to change the world for the better. Uh, when I got started with my financial journey, I was motivated by the fact that like, I didn't want to be at the beck and call and whim of my manager, who is another cog in the machine at this Fortune 500 company, right. who, you know, herself was six layers removed from the CEO uh, and had very little power. I didn't want that for myself. Right. Um, so fire was the goal, not real estate. Real estate is one tool in the arsenal for those moving towards fire. It happens to be a very good tool for a right. large chunk of the population because it offers cash flow um, uh, the chance for significantly better returns than, say, the stock market um, and allows one to do high dollar per hour activities. For example, fixing a toilet at your rental property um, is probably going to take you two hours and a trip to Home Depot and 50 bucks. Well, if it costs you $300 or $400 to call the plumber, that's a, that's a $200 an hour activity. Right. Um, so real estate investing offers people the opportunity to do that and to generate on top of that, those returns in the 15, 20, 25% range or even higher, depending on how you're capitalizing and finding deals and those types of things. So Again, the real estate I just decided was the right tool for me in my circumstance in life. Someone who's very busy or who earns a high, uh, very high dollar per hour salary, real estate's perhaps not going to be such a good tool for them. Someone who earns very little is going to have a lot of difficulty financing real estate. Um, somebody, you know, so it just depends. Yeah, There's tons of good tools out there. I appreciate the transparency there too, because I think the, the, the start for looking for that retiring early or the financial freedom starts at a selfish piece. You want to buy your own free time and it starts with, with those kinds of investments. But at the end of the day, it's once you, you kind of get tied to a community like bigger pockets, you want to share with everybody else. It's really easy and yeah. easy might be a loose term there, but um, simple if it's, if it's done the right way. Once you get it, you're just like, why is everyone not doing this? Why, right. like, what is going on? Like, how how are you not moving toward financial freedom? 
I yeah. don't understand. Um, right. And so that that's and and but but of course they don't understand you, and that's where you look for that community online, which brings us to like the, the fire movement and the communities around that. Bigger pockets, the real our real estate investing community, our, our bigger pockets, money and personal finance community, and those types of things. Right. Which perfect segue into bigger pockets. So I I joined five years ago. And it, it, it has evolved so much, almost even to uh, some of the, the, the publishing house you guys have too. But I'd love to hear a little more about uh, Bigger Pockets and kind of share that with everybody. Yeah. So, you know, what is Bigger Pockets? Bigger Pockets is first, is first and foremost a community. Um, you know, and around that community, so, so let's start with our forums. We've got 1.8 million people who have joined our community over the past 16 years. Mm-hmm. And some of those members come in and never do another thing again. Some of those members come in and post a handful of times in our forums and engage moderately, mostly lurk. And some of those users go on to post hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of times across our community, help lots of people in those types of things. We have this power curve of community active activism, you would say, you know, where you've got the, the lurkers who are doing basically nothing or, or hitting the site once, and then you've got folks that are really actively involved. Right. That gives us a really powerful competitive advantage because those power users and the folks that are really long-term meaningful contributors to our platform are folks that have done dozens of deals, that really know their stuff, that just love talking about it, love helping other people, genuinely good characters. We get to meet them and interact with them over time. And then we invite them to come and blog for us um, and, and write for our blog. We know we're getting self-made, multimillionaire, altruistic, charismatic, and articulate writers for right. our blog. We know we're getting, you know, we can invite them to come on our podcast and share their stories and successes, often right. journeys we've watched over years within the community. We can invite them to write books for us. So one of my favorite examples is we've got a fellow named Jay Scott within our community. Jay Scott joined the community 14 years ago, completed over 150 flicks and flip projects, posted 17,000 times to our community cumulatively, still does today, has written four books for us and now hosts one of our podcasts. And so what you get on Bigger Pockets is that feedback from the community that's, you know, and Jay, there might be a discussion about how best to flip a house. Right. And you might have three guys like Jay who all disagree with one another about the nuances of that and are respectfully going at each other's throats in a very productive way about, you know, they, they would ever do it that way, but about the right way to do that. And that's where learning takes place, I think, is when you say, hey, the best way to make money in real estate is by buying um, really cheap properties with great rent to price ratios in Detroit, Michigan. Right. And other guy's like, no, the best way to make money in real estate is to buy low cash flowing, but high appreciation potential properties in Denver, Colorado. And they're both making money and both have very sophisticated, low risk, um, long-term approaches to real estate investing. That debate and conflict, I think, is what is really valuable about what we do um, and why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah, I think that that's brilliant. So, and then you said that there's the forum piece, but the forum has evolved into what other main items for bigger pockets like like you're saying is more of a, a community that's become other than just looking for for advice yeah so look look and and and, and this was not articulated at the beginning and the outset for from a playbook perspective but if you know we we are we have kind of like a formula almost for creating value for our users in these different areas so for example um you know we've created a real estate rookie podcast recently Right? Why do we create a real estate rookie podcast? Well, we realized that the real estate podcast for Bigger Pockets is too um, broad in a lot of ways. 
for, for folks. It's very valuable. But, and then secondarily, when people listen to hundreds of episodes of that podcast, the 450th episode where they're hearing what is cash flow defined again, that, that's a poor user experience. But yeah. I can create a second, a second market here that has just the content that is always reiterating. Here's what a cap rate is. Here's what cash flow is. Here's what these numbers are. Here's what the real struggles of people who are not perfect and have done this for 10 years, but are going through their first deal. Everyone makes tons of mistakes in the first deal. Right. Um, figuring that out. Great. So you launch a podcast there. You build a Facebook group around that and you make sure that the show um, interacts with that Facebook group. You build that online community on the BiggerPockets web platform as well so that they can, they can interact on our forums in that capacity. You layer in a, a YouTube videos and those types of things that surround that content. The authors uh, over time begin to develop credibility in the space and really get to know the problems of their users, not just because they're interacting perpetually within the community, but also because they're having a forced interview about user problems uh, every week live on the podcast where they're thinking through it, not just from that user, but all the other problems that all the questions that they need to ask to give the most value to the other listeners. And so they become off, you know, credible, uh, great credible. And then there's a book um, that they can write that, that, that is, that becomes a a chance at it being a bestseller um, because of their credibility and has a very high chance of being a very high quality book as well because of their, you know, the, the amount of expertise that they're developing. Then, you know, you can layer in other things like live events around that. And so what is Bigger Pockets right now? Bigger Pockets is a community around real estate investing broadly that really brings all that together between digital um, experience with podcasts, online and social media community, and then the physical in the form of, you know, literal books, literal local meetups that are occurring all around the country. And then our, of course, our big conferences that we officially endorse and sponsor. Right. And it sounds like you take that broad community and you get extremely granular with it, which is really cool to hear about the, the podcast. And actually, he, I remember listening originally to the Bigger Pockets podcast and just that that's that was our option that we had as, as, as users and listeners in the real estate investing piece. And now you have the, the Rookie podcast, which is a good example. So actually listening to your users that are on the base and kind of expanding out into different verticals. Has that has that driven the strategy for let's say user acquisition on the site? Yeah. So, you you know, when I think about our business, I carve it out into like three kind of three or four revenue buckets, Mm -hmm. right? One is this kind of concept of what, what is really more of a traditional media business perhaps. Um, And that's our, our, our podcasts, our videos, those, those are monetized through advertising. Okay. So let's say, let's say, let's take a podcast like this, for example, Um, for us, you know, we, we sell advertising on our podcasts and that, that advertising costs $25 per thousand downloads, more, give or take. It's just the pricing depends on various things and, and, you know, the, the recency of the show, all those types of things. Let's call it 25 bucks per thousand impressions. And in an hour long episode, there will be five advertisements. Okay. So that means that I'm making $125 per thousand downloads. Right. Right. If we reach, and let's be conservative here, let's say we sell out 70% of the ads, okay? So, um, so look, I, I've got, if I've got an episode that, that serves 10,000 people, um, then I'm, I'm going to make $1,250. Right. I'm going to allow a vacancy allowance, uh, a, a unsold advertising allowance. Um, I'm going to, pay, I got to pay the hosts 
of the show, something. I've got to pay to produce and edit and, you know, write the descriptions and all those types of things um, to produce that show. And we've got to allocate overhead. You know, my time is worth something, as is the time of the rest of our staff and the office space and those types of things that go into all supporting that show. So at the end of the day, I've determined that if I get to about 10,000 listens per episode in a podcast, that I will more or less break even on that show. Life is not all about money, but you can't scale production indefinitely if you're losing money, right? So you gotta be at least break even for it to be valuable. And that's the great thing about capitalism in general, right? I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, it's all about money. No, my show is not making money if we're not getting enough listens and it's not valuable enough to enough people, right? Um, and so you can kind of do the same thing for a YouTube video, right? There's ads on the YouTube video and those types of things. And then there's, so each one of these pieces of content in general needs to have what's called uh, po- uh, uh, positive unit economics, right? The unit economics have to be favorable to allow us to continue scaling production. And where that's the case, the reason that's the case is because people are loving the content and consuming it at a high enough level or the right people are consuming that content. You don't, you don't need 10,000 listeners um, to a podcast on multifamily syndication. You right. only need 100 listeners for that one. And those people are each incredibly valuable, for example, to a sponsor for those types of things, right? Yeah. So you can build those niche communities. You just have to really know what your, your users are worth economically in order to scale a business, right? Um, on, on those things. And so the idea is like, great, you, you layer those things up and you say, all these things are related. They're all one and the same. A podcast listener drives, then goes on to potentially join our, our online community, then goes on to join the, the YouTube community. The more ways we can give them content and value, the, more, the better off they are, and the more they be go on to potentially contribute to the community. And each piece of the content then um, is contributing to other things, lowering my threshold where, right. I, you know, so, so for example, if that's break even on an in isolation for the podcast, I know that I'm getting potential other benefits like driving acquisition to our YouTube channel. Right. Um, and, and ultimately onto our site and perhaps some of those users go on to, to buy our pro membership or books as well. So really getting tight on those things I think is key. And then, so our model is, Hey, we got this media business We've got this subscription business, and we've also got what we call this lead generation business, where a lot of our users really need lenders, agents, insurance brokers, and property managers and those types of things. And one of our goals is to build out this directory of really good real estate, investor-friendly real estate agents, investor-friendly lenders, property managers, and have them rated by the community, given feedback and those types of things, and allow our users to go there. So what is our business model? Our business is a media business, a subscription business, and this lead generation business, but all tied around this concept of building community, one community and market niche and real estate at a time um, that our users demand and desire. Right. And you got to start with the community too, which is really cool to hear some of the strategy of, of creating that lead generation. And it's not just for a lot of times I hear lead generation on real estate. And I think a lender or a realtor, and it's just looking for the end user trying to buy a home. But it sounds like you're expanding it much further than that, which is really cool to hear. Do, do you think that is going to tie into, let's say, ad strategy for 2021? Because I, I'm thinking a lot of people are familiar with display and video. But as you already addressed, there's, there's audio that you guys are, are performing. There's 
connected TV. There's a lot of other options in terms of advertising, but do you think there's going to be some kind of direct correlation to like a direct sale with some of these, these lenders or these investors tied back to that media business, or is it going to be completely separate? Vertical. Are you are you are you asking about um, us acquiring new users or us selling our inventory as the publisher of advertising space? So you selling your inventory as the publisher? Yeah. So look, the way the way, right now we have a pretty simplistic model, right? Let's let's take our podcast for example, right? right. So our podcast um, gets a certain amount of downloads, and we typically sell those downloads to a national buyer of that inventory. Right. We have the ability to geo. So, so look, let's say that, that our CPM there is 25 bucks per, right. per thousand impressions, right? Well, we could geo target that and say, Hey, this is, this is, these are like three or four really good agents in Los Angeles. Right. Um, agent, would any of you guys like to sponsor the show and just reach the listeners in Los Angeles specifically, you know, for us to do that economically, we'll have to charge a much higher CPM than $25 because it's much easier to just sell, all the inventory in bulk to a national buyer right. sell it chunk by chunk. But you imagine that that's very valuable to that agent. Yeah. And you could drive that CPM to a hundred or 200 or even a thousand dollars per thousand listeners, um, potentially yeah. in, those, in those types of areas to make that economical. Is that answering your question? Yeah, for sure. And I think that you, you're, so the traditional way that we look at a, a direct sale is kind of like what you're saying in terms of, of, of bulk. So a lot of our publishers that we work with will take all the inventory that they have on the site, go out and let's say strike up a deal with, with Nike versus uh, the sponsorship deals that you're saying, but you kind of have, you have both, both in the, the, the advertising pie, if, so to speak, right? You have the, the large ones in bulk, but then just a higher CPM amount for, these smaller realtors or lenders uh, for the same amount of inventory and impressions. Absolutely. And we've tried to be very careful not to um, really get into bed with any advertisers and those types of things, because, you know, we feel that our, our goal is like, we're, we're happy to allow advertisers to sponsor our episodes and those types of things. And we, we have no, we, we, we typically believe that the ones that are, are sponsoring are reputable, good companies. We don't guarantee that. Um, we, we've, we've found a few in the past that we've had to cut relationships with and those types of things, but that, that's pretty rare. But, you know, what I think is really important is to make sure that if we're ever going to endorse somebody in the way that, you know, like in a really big partnership capacity, we have to be really sure that they're the actual best solution for our users yeah. and that they're going to remain the best solution for some time. Because the moment that we're pushing our, our audience to one product or another, and it's not the right one on the market is the moment I think we begin to, you know, destroy our brand, frankly. Yeah. In, in the, the bigger pockets brand, from my point of view, does put the, the user up on a pedestal, right? I, I think the user experience and what you're coming to the site for, uh, you guys put that at, at, at the very top of the list in terms of priority and correct me if I'm wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I remember being, being a user before I worked here and being like, good God, this is like a religion and a new way of looking at life. And like, I'm going to completely go in and go after this. And I love bigger pockets and yeah. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to be successful. I'm going to do almost whatever bigger pocket says to do to yeah. be successful. And like, if we abuse that, that's the end of our business. So I think that that's like, that's a big key for that. And, 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 and the kind of line in the sand there. Right. So trying to balance the user experience and the, the right amount of ad revenue for some of our publishers has always been a challenge. And I think you guys are, are striking up a really solid uh, 
I think balance, right? There's, there's the subscription model and I've got plenty of publishers that, that fall into that bucket. There's a paywall, you log in, you're not going to see ads. So how did, how did you and the, the BP team really figure out, I think the right amount of balance? Did you just go straight over to podcasts? It was going to be audio advertisements and any kind of direct sales and then keep the forums completely clean because we're focusing on the user experience or was it a completely different strategy? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take your question and, and re reframe it. Let me know if this is yeah. what you're asking, but, um, how do just like, generally speaking, how do we find the right balance of how much advertising to serve in general across the user experience? Yeah. I think on the forums versus podcast audio and, and keeping, keeping the forums clean again with the user being the, the priority. All right. So, so first of all, the forums look a little clean today because we, we got rid of those Frankly, you know, maybe get trouble to say this horrible Google display ads that are that you show up. But we had those for years and years and years and years and years, and we only killed them like last year, I think. Um, so how do we keep the forums clean? We just decided we had enough of that horrible experience. It, look, the, the Google display ads are—they're like big, they're giant calls to action. They're pulling people away from our platform. They're not very effective. People's eyes glaze over them, and they cause the site to load very slowly, which then causes us to, to ironically, because they're served by Google, rank lower in Google, we suspect. Um, so it's like, there's a whole bunch of good reasons for not serving those. Um, we're still gonna have ads in our forums and we still do. They're just embedded in the feed, much more along the lines of a Facebook experience, for example, where you, you know you're getting ads in there, but typically those ads are reasonably relevant to you and you're not like, I'm really annoyed by them. There's an art to, I think, correctly doing that in the online digital experience. Yeah. With the podcast, we just look at our competitor set and how they're, how they're doing it and say, okay, great. We've got fewer ads, ad time overall in our podcast and the competitor set. Why is that? Well, because we don't need the advertising revenues specifically. We, we, we certainly like to increase our, our profit margin on the advertising right. and these types of things. But the, the goal of the podcast is not in and of itself you know, in comparison to some of our competition to be the revenue driver. It right. is a one part of that community cycle, life cycle that I described earlier. And the goal primarily is to build that community and get to those points. However, we're not going to scale production about some on something that we're continuing, that we're losing more and more money every time we produce. Right. So it's just being tight on those uh, and those types of things. And then there's so many creative ways nowadays to, to potentially drive revenue, um, like I just described, by, by really getting smart about how we manage our advertising inventory, segmenting it to so that we're serving, you know, look, an advertiser might only lend in 12 states, 12 large states across the country. Right. They'd be willing to pay the same amount of money just to reach those 12 states and then give us back all the other inventory that's right. going to the other, you know, uh, 37 states, um, 38, whatever I said earlier, um, you know, the, and, and that's, that's, that's not like changing the user experience at all. That's improving the user experience and driving our ad revenue up because now I get all those impressions back, can resell them. And those listeners in those 37 states are now getting something that's at least relevant, somewhat relevant to them, um, rather than this ad from a, a sponsor that, that can't possibly help them. Yeah. Would you say having the advertising revenue as almost in, like, as you said, ancillary source of revenue for the company helped kind of keep the vision clear in terms of what you want to do with the forums and the site versus it being a primary driver and a lot of people just completely destroying their ad density on their site? 
Yeah, well, I, I think so. I think, you know, advertising revenue for us is a, it funds growth in mm-hmm. other areas of the business, right? right. Um, advertising revenue, when you zoom out and you look at like our a media component of our business, one of my jobs as CEO is to grow the value of the business of bigger pockets, right? Yeah. And, and, and advertising revenue or, you know, in some cases is not valued as highly as a revenue stream in general mm-hmm. as say a subscription product or those types of things. So I actually am able to use a lot of our advertising revenue and those types of things to fund a product and engineering organization that is working on delivering really good lasting subscription value, for example, to customers in that in, in various of these market niches and those types of things. Yeah. So is, again, is that answering your question? Going that, that's a perfect answer. Yeah, exactly what I was looking for. And I think the, the publishers will appreciate that and a good segue into what, what kind of advice you would give to, I think publishers right now in the industry that have open available inventory, what they're trying to do. I think you have a unique take on advertising, right? There, there, there are, there is display, there's video, there's a lot of different forms and and fashion that digital advertising take. And you are, I I think, have it pretty balanced between audio and native ads too. It sounds like on the forums. So what kind of pieces of advice you'd give somebody that's that's trying to do something similar and, and make sure that the user experience is clean on, on their site? Well, I think the first thing is if you've been doing the same thing for the last three or more years in a row, yeah. you're probably, that's the first place to look is to be like, all right, zero basic, pretend you don't have any of your systems. How would you do it from scratch? What would be, call up your advertisers and say, what would your dream sponsorship look like with us? Right. What would be the perfect thing that you want there? Right. Um, and go back from that. We, 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 here's, how's this for a travesty of a problem? In our, our, in our organization that we recently uncovered when we did this. We have this podcast for real estate investing. Right. Each week, that podcast generates like 200,000, sorry, every new podcast gen- typically generates well over 200,000 downloads in the right. first 90 days following release. Okay, the way we structure our contracts forever was this. We said, hey, advertiser, we're gonna tell you, we're, you're gonna get 200,000 downloads or more from this podcast and we're gonna charge you this fee. The problem was, you know, thir- one week out of the quarter, we'll have one that hits 198,000 downloads. And the way our contract is structured, we have to basically reserve the ad uh, when that happens. And it's like, no, no. And, and, and everybody else is getting 50,000 bonus impressions because, you know, over what they're paying for. So we, we did, and, and another problem with this is that the contract is only for the first 90 days. Um, but the the back catalog, uh, thirty or ninety days. I'm, I'm missing it up. But anyways, the back we, we all of our old shows. Users go back and listen to them in a binge format. So they'll just like crush hundreds of these old episodes. I know because I used to do that yeah. um, for for the show um, to get caught up. And so those are almost more valuable listeners to advertisers because they're really dedicated listening to every every single week rather than you know whoever happened to listen to that that first. They're probably all valuable. Yeah. Okay, great. So now I've just created, if you're following me, and I got 200,000 weekly, 250,000 weekly back catalog downloads. So now I've got between 250 and 300,000 incremental advertising impressions that I haven't been selling because I've been doing it one way for so long and just been like, you know, boxed in and looking at that. So it's like, I would say zero base it and say, how many total impressions am I going? What's the value of those? Oh, and I'm selling it at below market rates because our, our audience has these specific characteristics and those types of things. So it's really kind of getting clear about like, what is that? And, and then you think, okay, great. 
now that I've got like an, on that on a national basis, how do I then get creative to drive more than that? You know, is there a way to, to is LA worth, um, you know, that, that, I don't know, that make it up to 10,000 listeners in LA, is that worth $5,000 to somebody to sponsor that? Right. Probably, right? It, to the right sponsor. Or yeah. is the right sponsor willing to go in there and say, maybe not pay me $5,000, but pay me $1,000 per customer acquired yeah. from that, right? Um, and so those are, those are all ways. And, and look, the way I think about it from there is I've got this now theoretical max in inventory. Let's say it's $100,000 a week in inventory to sell. And maybe I'm selling 30, 40% of that theoretical max. That's great. That means I've got a really fun game to play. I need to go out and hire some people and tell them, dude, just go and stack this up. And like, no, I don't expect you to sell $70,000 in inventory at full price next week. I expect you to just like go to the advertiser and say, hey, advertiser, um, I've got $70,000 in inventory to sell next week alone, and I'm never going to sell it. Right. Um, the price would normally be 25 bucks per thousand. Uh, would you take it for 16 bucks per thousand impression? Right. I know, you know, it's, it's going to be way within your ROI threshold or whatever it is that you need in order to justify the spend. I'm getting zero. If I don't sell it, take that. And then you just fill up the bucket. Be like, okay, my, my theoretical max is a hundred. I'm going to go from 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 to 80% fulfillment. Um, and then once I get, start bumping up against 80% fulfillment, I need to really get, concerned because going from 80 to 100% fulfillment is really hard and stresses your relationships and forces you to be perfect. You know, right. you make a mistake, which always happens, like the copy's not right or the script was read wrong or the, the ad aired after the sale for the sponsor ended, you know, um, whatever it is. They don't come up that frequently in a good tight run organization, but they'll come up from time to time. It's yeah. much more fun to be, okay, instead of saying, how do I go from 80% fulfillment to 100% fulfillment? How do I go from 100 grand a week in potential inventory to 200 grand a week in inventory and then be again at 30 or 40% fulfillment? That's the game that the leadership, I think, of the organization should be playing to, to create that extra inventory and give your advertising, your, your sales team, the fun problem of filling up a really inefficient bucket rather than the, the tough slog and filling up what's your systems and when you truly run out fill out the systems and those types of things but otherwise kind of create that inventory yeah i think that's a really good point too to address that you're talking about for any kind of digital advertising but the the, the revenue targets not just a cpm target because as you said you can have an extremely high cpm for some of this advert inventory but at the end of the day your fill rate is a lot lower leaving a bunch of remnant inventory that you you have to go and sell so with, with that said, would you say that it, it might be worth, especially for a site, let's say like a million page views to 10 million page views a month, it would make a lot of sense to explore programmatic for some of that remnant, or would you still say, depending on that site niche, to target direct sales, like you're saying, going straight for some of these, these advertisers? Look at, it as a to look at it as a bucket, right? And say, theoretically, I could sell out every zip code in the country and get a a $500 CPM for that inventory. Right. That's completely impractical because I'm selling uh, advertising in $12 increments in order to get to that $500 CPM, right? right? So just look at it from a practice, say like, what is my, you know, th there's, there's these terms that you use in business, like tangible addressable market. What's that, That's the, the potential, that's like the, the biggest possible way to address your market. Then there's like the serviceable addressable market. Then there's a serviceable obtainable market. You're all that jargon. What is 
what do you think is like actually accessible for your organization? Not with your current team or the way you currently run ads, but in a theoretical capacity, right? What could you really be doing? And then it's not that hard. There's so many ways and programs and ways to begin selling this ad. Double click, for example, allows you to create lots of different custom images and sizes and those types of things. Right. You know, you can build an in-house advertising platform that allows you to place inventory. You can segment it by, by geography. Find cohorts of users that are big enough and meaningful enough that are going to be worth your time to sell. You know if it's 1,000 people, it's too small. You know if it's 10,000, you're probably close to the border on, on how big that is, on, on, on that. You know at 100,000, you're definitely worth carving out a reasonably sized cohort, probably, right. depending on your organization. Um, and then say, great, what's my, you know, what is the reasonable thing here? And then everybody else dump them into programmatic or to a national sponsor who wants to buy it at a discounted rate or whatever. Um, right. you know, but it's, it's just filling up that bucket, I think in general, the right way and appropriately make sure all these sponsors are right for your users and those types of things. They're not getting like, you know, um, inappropriate ads or ads that don't make any sense for them. Right. So essentially take a, take a look at your site. It, it take a good a good look at what's going on your user base what you have on the site in terms of content and then kind of addressing your ad strategy to that because everybody's going to be a little different where somebody might be 60 percent direct sold inventory versus programmatic whereas some other sports sites might be 60 percent programmatic and then the 40 percent being direct sold yeah like if you're on a sports site i imagine DraftKings is going to want to buy all your inventory right. right so it's like that then it's easy and you just like you, you say great i'm going to contract this agency or whatever i'm going to manage the, the relationship with DraftKings directly and that's it there's no point in hiring out a big complicated sales organization but yeah. you know for us you know given that we have communities of flippers communities of uh, wholesalers com communities of accredited investors and those types of things uh, i think it makes a little more sense to begin segmenting our audience more more, you know, in, in, in deeper ways and matchmaking them with advertisers one by one. You know, we've got in, in investors in local DMAs who need agents, right? Yeah. How, do you, how do you do a national campaign for a real estate agent? You can't do it. Right. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Scott, so for, for our audience today, what's going to be the easiest way for our users, our publishers that are listening today to get connected with you and BiggerPockets? Uh, sure. You can just email me at scott at biggerpockets.com. That's how okay. you go about it. And uh, always looking to swap ideas. I do not have all the answers for this. We're still figuring it out. I just told you how ridiculously inefficient, some of the ridiculous inefficiencies we found in our organization. So please shoot me some ideas and those types of things. And look, um, if you can help us fill up our bucket faster and more appropriately, I am all ears. So. Yeah. 100%. And then I, I can't leave this out, but I know you're an author and, and have wrote uh, Set for Life anywhere that they can find that as well, or is that going to be bigger pockets? Oh, thanks. Yeah. You can definitely, can definitely plug my book. Uh, feel free to, to, I owe you a couple beers now. Um, but yeah, uh, no, my book is called set for life. It's uh, written for, um, really kind of like people in their twenties and maybe early thirties that are looking to kind of move toward financial freedom from a standing start with little to no assets. And so it's kind of like, how do you save up that first 25,000? How do you buy that first investment or find that next job that allows you to have that, um, commission-based potential or those types of things that will help to scale your income. Uh, and you can buy that anywhere books are sold, including Amazon or on bigger pockets or at Barnes and Noble. Um, and, uh, many of those indie books, book retailers as well. Cool. couple different options. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope everyone has a great Friday and rest of your weekend. If you have any questions or comments, please leave them in the comment section below. And Scott, thanks for jumping on. Thank you, Josh.